I got uh, an email this week from, uh, from my friend who was here a few weeks ago. But uh, Sue and I will be serving in Asia with them in a couple of weeks. Uh, and they said there's a problem getting the visa because you gave your name on the hotel reservation, but your wife's name isn't there, and you have to prove that you're married. So they said you need to find, you need to find your uh, wedding certificate and mail it to us. And I thought, oh Lord, where is that? And uh, and so I, I went home, and and he said we need it by tomorrow, you know. So I, I went home, and uh, and I looked in all the obvious places, and it wasn't there, and. I called the, you know, I, I looked up online and it says, well, we can give you a copy of it in six to eight days. And I thought, well, maybe if I go right to the county, I, I called them and for birth certificates and death certificates, you can come in in the morning, get it in the afternoon. But it didn't say anything about marriage certificates. So I started driving down there and I called my wife and I said, where do you think this thing is? She says, well, I think it's in the, the wedding album. And, and, you know, we look at the wedding album just every week because <laughs> I love to see how thin and how much hair I had back then I was. But so, okay, so I went back home and uh, the wedding album wasn't where she thought it was. So I called her up again. Well, maybe it's in this place. And so I went and looked in that place and it wasn't there. And, and I thought, you know, I think we have some photo albums up in the uh, up in the attic, and so I went up in the attic, and I was very thankful I put an attic ladder in last year, so it was easy to get up in there. And in the the farthest back box, in the bottom of the box, there was my wedding certificate, and I said, "Okay, thank the Lord. Things are not always where you expect them to be." Like happiness. Look what Jesus says here about happiness. In Matthew 5, the word blessed means happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, verse 3. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Happy are those who are hunger. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Happy are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. We're going to look at at verse number five today, which says this, basically the truth that I've put up there. He said, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. And, and I've tried to verbalize meekness this way. Happiness is not found in self-preservation, but in complete reliance on God. The word meek is a, a tough word to translate from Greek into English, uh, the English word meekness often conveys uh, weakness to people. We think of, you know, somebody kind of, uh, you know, I'm I'm not too much and I'm not too good, and you know, maybe we think of a dog with his tail between his legs, and 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 yet the the, the scriptural term is not that at all. 
in fact, when Jesus said these words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he was almost, he was almost quoting the Old Testament here in Psalm 37. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The meek shall inherit the earth. We want to try to understand what scripturally what this word meekness means. And we start with this. Meekness means waiting for the Lord's accomplishment. Did you see this here? Rest in the Lord. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Meekness means waiting on God's accomplishment. One of the essences of this word, it has to do with power, and, and, you, and it could be translated gentleness. But it's not just gentleness for gentle sake. It's like Psalm 37 says here, rest in the Lord, wait patiently for him. There's certainly power with the Lord, but he says, you, don't fret, don't do these other things. Don't be like an evildoer. Wait on the Lord. Meekness means waiting for God's accomplishment. Now, that doesn't mean doing nothing. You know, uh, Andrew and those of us who work to promote events in the church are reminding you and reminding you about the parking lot party and the candy that's needed. We're not doing nothing. We're not sitting around saying, well, I sure hope something happens. And yet, um, we're not doing things in our own strength. You see, Psalm 37 drew a contrast between the believer who rests in the Lord and the evildoer who takes things into his own hands with anger, wrath, and anxiety. And so... If we would ask this question, what are the shortcuts of wickedness? Being meek and waiting on God to work takes time. We have to rest. We have to wait on the Lord to act. And there are shortcuts that the wicked people will take and believers will take as well from time to time. And the first one is anger. He says, don't be angry. How does a small child get their way? Do they come to their parents and say, Dear mother and dear father, I love you so much and you're so wonderful. And could you possibly find it in your heart to give me a piece of candy? And when the parent says no, the child walks away saying, Oh, aren't my parents wonderful? Is that how your small children got things? No, a small children throws a tantrum. They are angry, and they give me, and they want, and they fuss, and they fume. How does an adult who has not yet become godly try to get their way? 
I'll give you a clue. It's like the small child. Now look what the Apostle Paul said. What's the opposite of anger? We exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. You can act in anger trying to get your way, or you can be patient with circumstances while you wait for God to work. Anger is a shortcut that the devil wants us to take, our flesh wants us to take, but it is a shortcut that does not lead to happiness. It leads somewhere else. It may get things done, but it doesn't get God's work done. The second shortcut of wickedness is wrath. Wrath. Wrath is the outward expression of anger. The classic bully intimidates people to act as he likes. They are not willing to believe that uh, any... They are not willing to believe that any way except theirs is right, so they huff and puff and throw their weight around, and that's ungodly primarily because it's not waiting on God to bring things to pass. Does God have our best interest at heart? He certainly does. But James chapter 1 says, The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You cannot get God's work done. You cannot receive God's will in your life, God's best, by trying to use wrath to intimidate people into giving it to you. The third thing that Psalm 37 talks about is anxiety. And it says, in in Psalm 37, it said, Don't fret, it only causes harm. What is the harm that worry and anxiety cause? High blood pressure. That's right. The person that is harmed is the person who worries. And it also harms those around that person who tries to stir everyone up to be as anxious as they are. You can calmly give your concerns to God and wait. Or you can pace the floor, lose sleep, and make everyone else around you miserable because of your belief that things must be done in the way and in the time that you have determined. God says, don't do it. That, that if, you're, if you're living in anxiety, you're not waiting on the Lord. And there's a fourth one that he talks about, wicked schemes. In other words, uh, uh, you can sit around and think up some ungodly way to make things happen, but it, that, the problem with it is, first of all, it's not resting in God most famous cheater in the world right now is Lance Armstrong. Okay? He is the king of doping when it comes to uh, athletic competition. I mean, this extremely sophisticated system. And I understand all the other people who ride bikes dope too, but it's still against the rules. And so he is the most famous cheater, and he's, he's going to be uh, out of a lot of things. But he said... I want to win the Tour de France. Now, is that a bad goal? No, not a bad goal. But he said, I'm going to create a scheme that will give me enough physical strength to do it, but it was a wicked scheme. Now, those of you here today say, oh, I would never do that. I I believe you. 
But the question is, do you come up with other wicked schemes to try to accomplish the things you want to accomplish because perhaps God isn't accomplishing them fast enough? Meekness is waiting on God. Politicians are intent on getting elected and they will say all kinds of things. They will sit around and think about what they're going to say. Thieves steal because they can't wait to earn. Women give in to the sexual desires of their boyfriends because they crave a relationship. Men look at pornography because they cannot wait for God to provide for their sexual needs. And, and yet the scripture says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. The meekness of holding back on your own ability to make things happen and waiting for God. Waiting for God to make things happen in his time. I was riding with a Christian police officer in Tukwila once and we got a call for some street people. Uh, you know, we had a section of town where people were just kind of you know, I don't know if they were homeless or they were street people or whatever. And uh, we go up on this call and, and these people need to be told to stop what they're doing. And so he gets out and I just sit in the car and I listen to him and he cusses and swears and tells them what, what in the world they need to go and where they need to not be doing. And he got back in the car and he said, that's the only language they understand. You have to talk to them that way, otherwise you don't get anything done. Really? So you can't talk godly and thereby unleash God to motivate their hearts to do the right thing, even though they're ungodly. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was a wicked king, but he obeyed God. So you can't trust God enough to act godly all the time. You have to take things into your own hands. That is the opposite of meekness. Meekness is saying, I have power, and I could make things happen, but there is a godly way to do things, and I will do the godly thing and thereby wait and trust God to make the things happen that he knows I need when I need it. Meekness means waiting for the accomplishment of God. What does God want to do and when does God want to do it? Meekness also means wanting God's will. In Matthew 11, we read these words from Christ himself. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, from me for I am meek or gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. The word yoke, if you're not familiar with it in that day, usually referred to a piece of wood that would be put on two animals with the, with the hoop under their neck. So the two animals are hooked together to plow or to pull a cart or something of that nature. Today we have those made out of leather and, and that sort of thing. But they would have this wooden yoke and they'd put it on the animals and they would, they would work together. And Jesus said, you need to get into the yoke with me. Jesus and me hooked up together. Now, if you were in the yoke with Jesus, 
whose work and whose will would you be accomplishing? Theoretically, his. Because theoretically, he would be the stronger animal who would pull you in the direction he wants to go. And so if you don't want to work with him, you have to get out of the yoke and go your own way. But if he says, get in here with me and let's work together. Um, and when Jesus talks about himself and said he was meek, here's what he's talking about. He said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Numerous times while Jesus was on earth, he said, I only do what the Father tells me to do. Which means Jesus didn't act out of his own will for his own benefit. He was accomplishing God's work. And so he invites us to do the same thing. He says, get in the yoke with me, and together we will accomplish the work of God. And so the question that we have to ask as we come to Matthew 5, and he says, do you want to be happy? Then be meek. The question is this. Can I have a great life without making my desires the focus of my activity? As you get up in the morning and you say, what's going to motivate me to go to work today? Well, what's going to motivate me is, boy, I am going to buy this or have that, or I'm going to have this retirement or that plan or, or whatever it might be. Is that what your life is about? Or is your life about getting up saying, God, what do you want me to accomplish today? Maybe, God, you want me to, you, you want me to make a lot of money because there's something you want me to support or, or something you want me to do for you, but maybe you don't want me to make a lot of money. Maybe there are some things you want me to do that will involve not, and, and so on and so forth, saying, what is your will for me? Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to look at the example of the Apostle Paul. He just... He just really epitomized this idea of meekness. 1 Thessalonians 2. Starting in verse 1. For you yourselves, brethren, you know, brethren, that are coming to you. He's talking about the first time he came to them to preach Christ and to help them become disciples. You know that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit, but as we've been approved by God and to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our heart. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. We might have made demands as the apostles of Christ. But instead of that, we were gentle among you. There's our word. We were meek among you. Just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased rather to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. Now, if you're not quite grasping the whole situation, here's, here's what it was. The Apostle Paul had a trade. 
And often when he went into a place to start preaching the gospel, he used his trade to support himself. And his trade has become the term for a whole kind of missions. We call it tent making. Uh, A tent making missionary today goes to a place uh, maybe where they don't allow missionaries and they, they use their trade to have a place to work while they do the gospel ministry. The Apostle Paul's trade was making tents. And, and so he went to Thessalonica, and I want you to note what he said there again in verse 6. He said, I could have made a demand as an apostle of Christ. The apostle Paul had rights. What was his right? Well, according to 1 Timothy chapter 6, he had the right to be supported by the gospel ministry. Shall not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain, and, and, and so on. And yet he said, when I came to you, I had the right for you to support me, but I never asked. In fact, what I did is I worked night and day. I worked making tents, and I worked at sharing the gospel with you. Now, how does that come back to wanting God's will? The Apostle Paul wanted God's will to be done, not his own rights to be addressed. He said, if I have to work night and day in order to accomplish God's will, I will, but I will not demand my rights. I will put my will second and God's will first, trusting him to meet my needs when they are present. I went to work out on Thursday evening and I saw an old friend who had been a foreign missionary for a number of years. And we were having a lovely discussion about how people come to faith in Christ. In fact, that's where that that story that I just shared with you about a woman receiving a tract, where it came from. And we were talking about that and other things about how people come to the Lord in that country. And, And right in the middle of our nice conversation about people coming to the Lord, an unbeliever had the audacity to jump into our conversation. Talking about the terrible condition of the world and uh, that Muslim uh, majority and boy, I'm struggling with them and I think I hate them and he's going on and on. And (laughs) there's just that littlest twinge of saying, hey buddy, we're talking here. Isn't that the awfulest thing? You understand? I have a will and God has a will. And I, I obviously knew, another, I, don't, I don't even know this person's name, but I see him at the gym, and we've talked a number of times. And so as we stood there, my thinking shifted, okay, now how do we turn the conversation? And my friend Joe figured out how to turn the conversation first, and he turned the conversation, and, and we uh, sort of tag team, tried to witness to this fellow. God has a will. In fact, God's will was so specific at that point that this person was talking a lot about being a Native American, and my friend Joe is full-blooded lummy. Okay, that wasn't an accident. Okay. I have a will and God has a will. You have a will and God has a will. The question is, am I going to live meekly under God's will, trusting him to bring to pass whatever it is I think I need? 
The Apostle Paul not only wrote these words, he lived them and believed them. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, the fact that God mercifully did not send you to hell, but he saved you. He took away your sin. He's given you a new life. And because of all that he's given to you, I am begging you, beseech, I'm, I'm urging you that you would give your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The truth is, when we come to Christ, we are bought like a slave out of the slave market of sin. God owns us. And God calls to us and he says, come and work with me. Get in the yoke with me. And and what we find out here is this is reasonable because of all that God has done for us. But the rub comes when we're saying, no, God, I have some stuff I want to get done. And of course, there's a, there's a genre of Christianity today that would say, well, you just tell God what, what he's supposed to do. You just name it and claim it. And that's not why God exists. And that's not what we want ultimately because real joy comes when we get in the yoke with God. How, how great would it be for you to set yourself aside and, and come to that parking lot potty and hand, hand out tracks to somebody. And how great would it be for you someday to hear somebody tell a story about some track they got at this crazy Baptist church? Would you look back then and think, boy, I wish I had been home watching football that night? No, you'd think, wow, that's the greatest thing. God asked us to make those sacrifices up front to say, you know what, my needs go second and I will trust God to meet them while I give myself to his will. Meekness is putting yourself aside, putting God's will front and center, and trusting him to meet your needs. Number three, meekness means working in God's power. Working in God's power. Listen to this testimony from the Apostle Paul. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness of and gentleness of Christ, who in presence, talking about himself, in presence I'm lowly among you. This was their criticism of him. He said he, he wasn't too much to look at or to listen to. We have this image of the Apostle Paul being some great big strapping tall man who spoke eloquently, and apparently that really was not the case. He, he was in extremely smart, but, but maybe not so much to look at. I who am lowly among you, but being absent, I'm bold toward you. But I beg you that when I'm present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. He said, look, we, we do not walk according to the flesh. This is not our human, our human way of doing things. For though we walk in the flesh, we have a physical life. We do not make spiritual warfare according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly or physical, but are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Paul said, when I go out to do the Lord's work, when I go out to live my life, I use the weapons of God's warfare. And, and there are two of them that I can name for certain. And, and you're going to be really familiar with them. And, and so I've only chose to na- name the ones I can name for certain. And the first one is prayer. In Joshua chapter 9, we read about Israel trying to make a wise decision. 
uh, some people came to them. The people were being deceptive. They didn't know that. They came and wanted a peace treaty, and so they went through this whole process to be deceptive. And uh, so Israel, the leaders of Israel gave some real good thought to what was going on. But the scripture specifically says when they made the decision, they gave all this thought, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. Now, it's not an accident that God wrote that down. Because later on, it, it, it was a bad decision. So the question I would ask you here is this. Does your prayer life show that you rely on God to make things happen in your world? Does your prayer life show that? In other words, we get up in the morning and, and, and you know we have certain capabilities and we think, well, I can do this and I can do that and I can do the other and... Next week I have this thing to do, and James, he says, come now you who say, today and tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what tomorrow will hold. Do you approach life that way, or do you approach life this way? God, there's a thing I'm, I'm working toward here. There's something I, I, I would really like to see happen there. There's this thing that I have to do today. Does your prayer life show that you are relying on God or yourself? Reliant. Do you pray regularly for those things that concern you? Do you have a method of remembering the things you need to pray for regularly? Do you ask others to join you in prayer? Here's a real kicker for meekness. Are you meek enough? Do you so believe in the power of God and not your own power that you would go to somebody else in the body of Christ and say, I have a concern. Would you pray with me and would you pray for me? Or are you self-reliant? Self-reliance is the human way. It's the American way, but it is not the godly way. Paul said, the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, they are godly. And so prayer is a starting point. And of course, the next one is scripture. Do the words that come out of your mouth demonstrate a belief that God's word is more powerful than your words? Do the words that come out of your mouth demonstrate that you believe God's truth is more powerful than any way you could express something. Now, I'm not suggesting that you're always, you know, somebody asks you a question at work tomorrow and you say, uh, touch not the unclean thing, or thou shalt not lie. No, but what I am suggesting is, that, is this. Does God's word inform your communication? Or is your communication formed in your human way of thinking, in the experiences of your life, in the norms of your workplace or social circle? You know, <laughs> in an organization I was part of many years ago, a man was going around showing us a new product to be used. He, we were considering changing from one product to another. And uh, it was his job to kind of coordinate this. So he, he went to everybody who was there that night and said, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Came to me. What, here's, we're thinking about going to this. What do you think about that? I said, looks great. He went to the next fellow to ask the same question, but he had to use curse words to do it. Now, why? The only thing I can figure out is 
you're not manly unless you use curse words. Okay? If you're going to talk normal, you're going to use curse words. You're going to use obscenities. Because that's what real men do. Okay? Now, that's just one example, but we, we have to say, do I communicate in such a way that I believe the words of God, the thoughts of God, the way God communicates is good enough? Because ultimately, I believe it is God who makes things happen, not me. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're spiritual. Well, the, the fourth and the, the final thing here, meekness means waiting for God's recognition. One of the great records of Christ's meekness comes from Peter. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile again, or when he was insulted or that type of thing, did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. What did Christ deserve in his human earthly existence? He deserved to be treated with all the reverence of divinity because he was God in the flesh. He deserved to have people fall down before him like they would before an earthly king. He deserved to be born in a palace, not a barn. He deserved to be over his parents, not under them. He deserved to be respected by his family, not belittled by them. He deserved to be immediately believed by his listeners, not accused of insanity or demon possession. He deserved enthronement, not crucifixion. If you went to work tomorrow and somebody said to you, you are possessed of a demon, and they were serious about it, you'd think, I don't deserve that. Christ did not deserve it. And yet, what was his, what was his attitude? It was like this. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery. He, he didn't consider it something that he had to hang on to. He let go of his existence. He did not trade insult for insult. He did not threaten to pay back like for like. He stood silent before Pilate as a sheep led to the slaughter. And as Peter said, he committed himself to him who judges righteously. He put his personal concerns aside and waited for God's recognition. Because he was doing what God wanted. And so the question is this, what matters more? Your esteem or God's glory? When an immature brother or sister is offended, do you say, I'm sorry, how can I help? Or you have no right. What matters the most when an unbeliever criticizes Christianity? This fellow that my friend and I we're talking to was really criticizing the early form of Christianity in this country in, in the most gracious way possible, but he kept going back to it and back to it and back to it, basically saying that the colonialist came and really messed with the Native American population, and he's, you know, but he needs to know the Lord. And so my 
personal offense, whatever that might be, needs to just go away. And, and, and let God, let God esteem me when or if he thinks that is necessary. Four definitions of, of meekness and one result. Meekness results in God's blessing. Back in Matthew 5, he says, the meek are going to inherit the earth. Why does the person who refuses to assert his own greatness inherit the world? Why does the person who commits themselves to God's care achieve happiness? Well, here it is. Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The word resist here is a very picturesque word was used in secular Greek to talk about people going to war against each other. Warfare. Are you telling me that God goes to war with people who are proud? Yeah. But he gives grace to the humble. This is what it looks like in salvation. For we ourselves, Paul says, I I myself, I was once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. In other words, you can show up to heaven saying to God, Look what I have done. I have worked. I have achieved. And you will be disappointed. Or you can show up to heaven saying, I am unworthy, and God saying, that's okay. I have given you salvation already because of the sacrifice of Christ and because you are willing to believe. You're either going to rest on God's salvation alone or you're going to assert your own worthiness, and if you try to do that, you will lose God says, I will provide for you. You need to rest from your own attempts to provide for your salvation. This principle of humility and blessing begins with salvation and it continues into the Christian life. This verse that we just read, um, or after those verses, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, therefore that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. If you pick up God's will and you rest in God's work, then in God's time, he's going to exalt you, he's going to bless you, and the blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it, the Proverbs say. Tomorrow, the magnum goes into the body shop to get the deer out of my headlight. I've never... I've never had a body shop that, that was my usual place to take the car. <laughs> I can remember in recent months thinking about how expensive car insurance is. But now it's the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> I, I called my agent and they said, hitting a deer is covered under the comprehensive coverage. So the deductible is just $100, and in a week it'll all be new again. Wouldn't it be nice to have life insurance? Oh, I know, some of you are saying, oh, there is life insurance. No, 
there's money they pay you when somebody dies, but there's no life insurance. You cannot preserve your own life, but God can ensure that your life will be way more than you ever imagined if you will live in meekness before him. Father, help us. We have things we want to do and ways we want to get it done. And it's hard for us to wait on you. But we want to. Help us. Help us rest in your power and then help us to see your hand and to glory in that and to be encouraged to rest in your hand even more. I pray in Christ's name, amen.